0: Welcome to the Progressive Property Podcast, helping you invest in property for freedom, choice and profit. You'll learn new, innovative and multiple streams of property income, whether you want to start, scale or systemize. And even if you don't have deposits. Hi, I'm Peter Jones, Chartered Surveyor, Author and Property Investor, and this is the Progressive Property Podcast. And I'm delighted to be joined today by a man who has got exceptional knowledge around commercial conversions, around planning, around all kinds of stuff which hopefully I'm going to tease out of him over the next 45 minutes or so, David Kemp.
1: Hello, David. Hello, Peter. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast.
0: Well, it is a pleasure. And you were just reminding me before we went on air that uh, you were on the Progressive VIP, Mm -hmm. and I had the great privilege of being your mentor from time to time. You did, yeah, absolutely,
1: yes. Yeah, and it was um, it was during the time when I actually did my first commercial conversion deal as well, um, with uh, a friend, another chap I know called Greg Kuzdenyi, and um, we've looked at very many projects together. But that was that was quite a whopper that first one. That was about six million pound deal, uh, which the client has gone on to uh, get change of use for for forty two units and probably worth about um, somewhere between. Uh, 20 to 25 million pound gdv at the moment so fantastic we will probably come
0: back to that but what i should say is i should introduce you properly and tell everybody who you are and what you are because you've been in property directly indirectly i guess Mm. for quite a while
1: yes because
0: you're a man of many qualifications
1: yes you're a barrister yep you're a solicitor Uh, We're not on the roll any longer, but I did qualify as a solicitor. Yep, Yep. and you're a chartered surveyor, and I'm a chartered surveyor. Which
0: actually I didn't know until I was reading through your notes. so There we go. (laughs) That (laughs) slipped me by. Yeah, general practice. Many, many qualifications. Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Mainly around the property side, and of course you've got a lot of experience in planning. Yes, you've done a lot with local authorities.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've done. uh, I've also worked within local authorities quite a bit as well. Uh, So I sort of become poacher turned gamekeeper to a degree by going back over to private consultancy working for the dark side of the force now unfortunately but uh, it's great fun Uh, i was a senior or principal planning lawyer for about 10 different councils over a period so yeah quite interesting to see it on that side of the fence so that
0: suggests to me that it was a natural step for you to go into commercial conversions because you'd sort of seen them from the from the other side as you put it
1: um, in a way I don't necessarily think that it was a natural step from being from working as a as a planning lawyer um, it became a natural step for me because of the way in which I was as gravitating towards back towards property generally in property development property investment um, is actually. Uh, goes back a long, long time back to kind of to, to 2010, and I was looking at internet marketing alongside of property. Uh, I went to see Rob speak uh, as long as uh, uh, as well as a number of other speakers uh, at an entrepreneurs boot camp down mm. in Brighton back in I think it was 2010. Around then, mm. and it was shortly after that I signed up for the masterclass and then went on to do VIP and all that sort of stuff as well. So. I I restarted my property education um, and it was a very different kind of education than I'd had on the professional side working as a surveyor because, Mm. you know, you're you're taught as a professional to give advice and provide a service. Now I was looking at it from the client side, um, working as or work with developers, basically in joint venture partnerships and that sort of stuff as well. And then that led on to working with People and commercial conversions. Mm.
0: So, had you always wanted to do property
1: for yourself? As no, I'm, I'm
0: interested as to how you sort of migrated across from <laughs> the consultancy <laughs> side to actually doing the doing.
1: Yes, yeah. I, it, I mean, I mean, when I was growing up, obviously, I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a while, and thumbing around looking to see what the family were doing. My brother was in West End agency. My grandfather on my mum's side was a property investor based in Bristol. They grew up in Bristol and then they moved to London. So they had a number of properties, let properties to let, student properties in the Clifton area in Bristol. So anyone who knows the Bristol area, that's a very popular area for, for students. Uh, so it just seemed a natural push for me. As a family, we kind of get together, we discuss, we talk about business a lot, we talk about property a lot. So it was sort of in the blood in a way. Mm, excellent. So,
0: commercial conversions. Yes. You move out of the, the sort of the consultancy side, the local authority side. You're looking to do property. You see Rob Moore speaking. Yes. The first time I came across you, of course, was at Masterclass. Yes, that's right. Going through the foundational stuff all around property, not yep. realising you were chartered surveyor, but there we go.
1: So, what happened next? How did you end up with that deal? So, on MSOPI… Um, Multiple streams of yes, property income. Yes, um, yep. yep. Um, I met up with a chap called Greg Kuzdenyi, uh, and he went on to do commercial conversion. I went on to go through the masterclass route. I looked at various different deals, but I was also, because I was managing a busy planning consultancy at the time, I was also looking to partner up with somebody who I could share the workload, share the burden with, and we could play to our respective strengths. So it was some time afterwards, um, Greg got in touch with me and says, "Listen, he's, he's finding some deals, but he was looking for people to come in who could bring in the money, could bring in the sourcing. And uh, that's really how it started. And so I kind of came together with, with Greg uh, at that time, and he found a deal that I took to the table of uh, a client of mine on the planning consultancy side and said that it's a great deal. We think we could achieve this on the site." And uh, the client was sufficiently attracted by, by it, he, he went ahead and he bought it. Um, so that was a couple of years ago now, and um, we've looked at various other deals since then as well. But uh, the client's got prior approval, uh, effectively to change the use from offices to residential to 42 flats, and he's now looking at bigger schemes to build on top of that up to about 60 or 70 units mm. in total.
0: Brilliant. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into the nitty-gritty of how you actually do this kind of deal then, mm-hmm. because you just mm-hmm.
1: mentioned prior approval. What, yeah. is, what is
0: prior approval, David?
1: Well, prior approval is a bit of a fast-track process. So instead of having to go through the very long, elongated process with planning permission, it's a bit of a fast-track. So it removes a lot of the obstacles to it, and it um, it's a sort of a legal-led process with a bit of planning policy in between. Uh, and because it's a sort of um it's a bit like permitted development a lot of your listeners probably would have heard about permitted development the advantage to it is that it takes the politics most of the politics out of the process so um, what you'll find is a lot of com- councillors they can't call in these applications because under the internal rules of every local council they have what's called a a delegation a scheme of delegation and Sometimes if it's politically controversial, they don't like losing offices, for instance, then councillors try to call these things and they can't do that with prior approval. So it's a much more straightforward route. Uh, it's a bit more technical and also it has a set period to be decided um, in that applications have to be determined within 56 days or, or eight weeks. And if they're not, then in pretty much all cases, if not most cases, of what's called prior approval in the law, then you get um, planning permission um, straight away for the change of use. And it, I have to say, it's only for change of use. There are a few exceptions around the law where you can have uh, external alterations included, and you get that with agricultural prior approval, going, going from a agricultural building to residential. Uh, but most of it's, it's to do with change of use, so if you need to make external alterations to a building, it will have to, like windows, doors, change the roof, slope, that sort of thing, then you have to apply for planning permission separately
0: for that. So Yeah, but the principle is, that if there's something like an office building and you want to turn it to residential, then basically the local authority can't stop you.
1: Uh, pretty much, yeah. Um, there's a few boxes to tick along the way, there are a few risky uh, things to consider, conditions, so on and so forth, But the the great thing about it is that most councils will insist that you have to go out and market the property for offices for at least 12 to 18 months uh, and then prove that there's no demand for it. You don't have to do any of that in this case and there's no affordable housing required either, which is also a great thing.
0: Yeah, and this is why we love prior approval when we're thinking about commercial conversions.
1: Absolutely, and also there's no minimum size on the units, Um, Mm -hmm. so you don't have to comply with... The national policies on minimum unit sizes—they can be as small or as large, but often as small as you as you like. So um, that tends to be determined by other factors such as lending criteria for mortgages and things like that. But um, it's a very, very—it's a great process, and it, there's an awful lot of money in it.
0: Yeah. So basically, from the layman's point of view, the way I see it—and you can correct me if this is horribly wrong. But the way I see it is that if you're going to do it under prior approval, you know you can because the government have said you can. Yes. The council can't stop you, but you can't just crack on and do it. You've got to go and tell the council you're doing it and they'll look Mm. at it and they'll say, yeah, we agree you're doing it under prior approval. And then he sends you a bit of paper, which basically says we agree you're doing it under prior approval. That's fine.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much it.
0: But it's not totally risk-free, as you say. No, and it's not. No, and no. there's some things which I, I know that we, we probably need to sort of consider when we're thinking about all of this. So Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. T- tell us, what, what, what are the risks then, David?
1: Uh, so, as I say, there are d- different um, prior approvals. So there's offices to residential, there's agricultural to residential, and so on and so forth. And obviously, there's not enough time today to go through all of them, but the most commonly used one um, is office to residential. And... Where the um, where the prior approval mechanism says you've got to get permission for the council for these particular conditions, so there are certain boxes you have to tick in terms of satisfying the council before they'll give you that bit of paper, um, they are what I would determine the risky areas. Mm-hmm. So you've got four of them under office to residential. You've got noise, ground contamination, uh, traffic and parking and flood risk. Okay, okay, well, let's, so,
0: go, let's, let's, let's take a, a stroll through those then. Yeah, yeah. absolutely,
1: yeah. So, um, if you're looking at sites and you're trying to work out whether or not it's risky or not, so uh, let's take each of those in turn and suggest some particular sites where you might find perhaps a higher degree of risk. Just to be absolutely
0: clear, what are we defining as risk in this particular instance? Risk of what?
1: Um, risk of the council not approving the um, the prior the application for prior okay. approval. Okay. Fine. So yeah. it puts at risk the, the ability to get that bit of paper, which okay. of course has a knock-on effect to the rest of the deal. Now you need that bit of paper to sometimes to refinance within the deal, to be able to complete the purchase, to do what you want at the end of the day and make the deal stack. Okay, okay. fine. So uh, noise, first of all. Uh, obviously, if your offices are next to or near to other industrial units or areas, There may be a noise output from those um, other industrial buildings. There may be heavy industry going on. If there's storage and distribution um, uses like warehouses and stuff like that next door, they tend to be a bit quieter. uh, But then you do get the constant bleeping of uh, lorries reversing and moving about and so on and so forth. So that may have to be taken into account as well. Uh, Quite commonly as well, there are a lot of substantial offices, very large offices, which are ripe for this kind of conversion, which are near to or next to railway stations. Mm. And a lot of people uh, don't tend to think of them as being commercial premises, but of course it's a commercial use, a railway. And so your you often have to do a noise assessment in relation to that. And the officers who are responsible for assessing that, called the environmental health officers within the council, and they are becoming a lot more stringent about how these noise assessments are undertaken they want to see a breakdown of the noise from the railway station over a period including days and nights particularly if there's freight freight trains going through and also station tannoy announcements as well Uh, and we've got one on at the moment which we're negotiating with officers in uh, Crawley and um that all of those issues are getting thrown up at the moment as well. So a lot of those things can be dealt with within the application, but it is risky, and obviously you'll need an expert um, noise expert or a noise acoustician uh, in order to be able to advise, do a comprehensive report, and uh, often then negotiate directly with the environmental health officer if there are any issues. Right,
0: because I was going to say, if you've got a property which is ripe, for conversion, in all respects, but it happens to fall down on something like noise. Yes. And if it wasn't for that, you would have got prior approval, but you're yes. not going to get prior approval. Yes. Would you then be thinking about going through the normal planning procedures, or, or would you tack it onto the prior approval and try and convince them that the prior approval should go through anyway?
1: Um, no, you have to tick all the boxes, basically, but it depends why it's failed. And sometimes these things fail because not enough information has been presented or it's not been presented in the right way. Uh, um, perhaps also uh, more investigation needs to be provided. Uh, you need to perhaps propose um, some form of mitigation. Let, let me give you an example, for instance, a hmm. practical example how that works with noise. Quite often uh, the officers will want to see uh, units which have really good um, natural ventilation. So sometimes they want the windows to be openable. But of course, if you start opening windows, then you start letting noise in. Mm. Uh, so there are circumstances when you're allowed to open the window just uh, in order to get rid of smoke or to get rid of uh, a build-up of um, other things. About, I don't know what what it would be, but usually it's smoke. Um, or uh, just to purge the um, the flat or the apartment, give it give it a bit of fresh air and so on and so forth. Usually emergency conditions, very rare, uh, they're called purge conditions. We're going to kind of get into a technical area. Yeah. I don't want to get too deep mm. with it mm. at the moment. But um, sometimes in order to get around that, you might have to have a system of mechanical ventilation within units. It's going to add to the costs, but you've got to weigh that up against the importance of being able to discharge this condition because if you don't propose that, or you don't propose things like trickle vents or stuff like that, which are small vents that you can um, put into the window frames and it allows a little bit of ventilation to come in through the window frames uh, without having to open up the window completely, Uh, then that sometimes will satisfy the environmental health officer. But it's about striking that balance between the quality of the accommodation uh, and the quality of ventilation, uh, but at the same time controlling the amount of noise coming through. So sometimes... If not enough information is provided in the first place to officers, they will refuse it. Um, And they sometimes won't give you an awful lot of time to come back and propose mitigation within the application. So the fact that you might get it refused first time round doesn't mean that they won't be prepared to talk to you on a subsequent application. You might be able to overcome those obstacles. It's just because they're very wary about this 56 day period, this eight week period. And they don't want to miss it because if they let things drag out, then what will happen is they have to grant approval by law. It's forced on them uh, and they don't want to be in that position. So they'd rather issue a refusal if they're not entirely happy or they're not sure and then deal with the problems further on when you come back to them and try and renegotiate. Right. So always
0: better to have all your ducks in a row when you make the first application. If you
1: possibly can. We'll come. And that is no more important than on flood risk, but we'll come to that later as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. So next on the list, ground contamination.
1: Ground contamination. Um, Again, if you're near to industrial areas, um, also some offices, particularly in rural areas, are built on former agricultural land. So there may be pesticides and things like that in the soil. Um, And also if you're near to or adjacent to railway stations, some offices sit on land which used to be used as railway sidings. So sometimes these things used to... Be home to uh, storing all sorts of canisters and containers with sometimes uh, chemicals and things like that in them as they were kind of carted off on freight later. Uh, and so that may not necessarily be what you see in front of you now, but it may have been something that was there in the 1950s or 40s or the 60s or whatever it was. And so it might be, there might be um, still a little bit of the deposits or the contamination in the soil. So there will need to be what we call a desktop survey, so there doesn't necessarily need to be samples taken, Um, but if the desktop survey reveals that there may have been a history of contamination on the land, then the council might then say, well, we won't sign this off for prior approval unless you can reassure us further by doing some soil samples. So it can become a, a little bit expensive also on that side, but then again, that's to get them over the hurdle. Um, and we had this on a site in Bramley in Hampshire. We finally got prior approval through, but ground contamination came up because the site was shown on historic maps to have formerly been part of farmland, and there may have been a couple of uh, farm silos, uh, you know, housing pesticides, manure, and that sort of stuff uh, on the site as well. Not necessarily on the site of the existing buildings, but, you know, it, it was there. And we therefore had to um, submit further information, these desktop surveys, do ground contamination investigations, and finally got the prior approval through. Uh, It did carry us, this might be interesting to your listeners, it did carry us past the eight-week period. um, But the council can agree with you an extension of time beyond the 56 days if it it can do it or if it wants to. Um, usually because you're they're, they're awaiting a report on that side and the scheme otherwise is acceptable, but they just need a bit more time to consider it. Right, but presumably that needs your consent. That, needs, agree that does it. need our consent. And I can't think of a situation where we wouldn't give that consent because it's far more preferable to still have a current application running than to have to reset the clock and start all over again.
0: Mm. mm. Interesting because I mean, there might be those out there who might be wondering why you don't just say, No, tough, we've got our eight weeks, you've got to give it.
1: No, you but, wouldn't because but, because if the council went back to you in, and said, or you went back to the council and said, No, we're not going to grant an extension, they'll just refuse it. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And it's always worth playing the game with them anyway, isn't it? Because yes. you're in this for the long term. So you exactly.
1: Don't want to upset your local authority. Exactly, exactly. Because yeah. remember, they they as I know where earlier, you live. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) As I said earlier, you may have to go back to them with an application for planning permission for new doors and windows and other things like that as well. Yeah, and
0: they'll remember. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely.
1: So that's ground contamination. Um, The next one is particularly important, traffic and parking, because this can make a real difference to your numbers in terms of the number of units you can get on the site. So if you're in a town centre, you want to go for the highest density development you possibly can. So this is why you see a lot of Companies like uh, Inspired Assets, such as Martin Skinner's um, uh, firm and, uh, and other companies, they're doing high density developments, so they've gone for these smaller units, usually about 30-35 square metres in size, which is below the national described standards, uh, but um, they can do that because there's no limit on uh, um, on the floor areas in terms of prior approval, uh, and also, because in town centre areas, uh, there is no need for on site car parking. Uh, they're very well served by public transport, uh, but yet there are different ways of assessing how well accessed a site is by public transport. It differs outside London to how it is inside London. Uh, but if you uh, can get the conditions right, you get a, a robust traffic and parking report and you put that across to officers with your application. Uh, then you can often get away with a lot more in terms of units than otherwise the council would give you if you just played by their standards set out in their local plan. So it's well worth looking into. And sometimes before you are going to acquire a site, it's well worth having a parking consultant or a traffic uh, consultant as part of your power team, because, uh, their advice, even if you've got to pay a small amount just to get some initial advice from them each time you're looking at the site seriously, um, the the insight they can give you in terms of how you can drive your car parking numbers down uh, and therefore improve or increase the number of units you can get on site easily pays back what you can what, what otherwise you'd have to pay to them. Yeah. Well, an example of that which I, which
0: I can think of is Rob and Mark, co founders of Progressive, who are currently mm. doing a 98-unit conversion in the centre of Peterborough. Yes. I mean, if they had to provide 98 parking spaces or more, they'd be buying the local multi-storey.
1: That's right. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So, it's well worth doing, you know, and that, that drives a lot of value. Mm, totally. Yeah. Uh, so, in terms of parking, traffic and parking, if you're out of the centre, you're in rural areas, you're in villages… Um, or you're generally in areas of low public transport, it does become much more difficult. And that is where, if you are going to want to propose perhaps less than one-for-one car parking, one parking space per per unit, um, then if you're looking for lower ratios than that, that's when you really do need a parking consultant involved Hmm. at an early stage. Hmm. But it doesn't
0: necessarily have to be that the parking is on site, does it, as I understand it? If you can show that you can provide parking another format somewhere else yes it does like other become, arrangements it
1: does more com- become more comfortable uh, more complicated because you may have less control over those arrangements because you don't own the site and therefore you're going to rely perhaps a m- lot more on parking agreements rights of way easements and that sort of thing as well And a lot of these things uh, can be taken away from you over a period of time uh but um it is possible yep hmm. yeah certainly yeah there's usually a way There is usually a way, yes.
0: But as you say, get the people in who know because they'll be able
1: to tell you. Quite, absolutely, Yeah. yeah. So those are the first three. So just to recap, noise, ground contamination, traffic and parking. The fourth one in terms of high risk would be flood zones. Now there are two types of flooding that we tend to look at and that's surface water flooding and also flooding from rivers and seas. Now, flooding from rivers and seas is probably generally regarded as the most important of the two, and that is what is specifically measured by the government flood risk map in terms of flood zones one, two, and three. So, if you go online, you put—I can't remember what the what you put into Google. I think it's flood map planning service. Um, there is a particular website that it takes you to a government website you put in your postcode, uh, just check that the pin drops on the right property, and it'll give you sort of like a a blue contoured map, different shades of blue, and the deeper the shade of blue, the more risky it is. So um, flood zone 3 would be a very deep blue, there would be sort of a lighter blue for flood zone 2, and an even lighter blue, um, perhaps some sometimes not even marked for flood zone 1. Now, the significance of that is that there is a a policy, local, there is a general policy, a national planning planning policy presumption, generally against having residential in flood zones two and three. Um, However, there are certain exceptions. There are a couple of tests that have to be passed. I'm not going to get into the technical uh, level of it. But um, generally speaking, if you find yourself in a flood zone one, It's fine. You won't need a flood risk assessment for it. Um, Similarly, for a low level of surface water uh, problems, it's not normally a problem. Um, It will be shown on the map, but also worth checking with the council whether or not they have the site registered on their database as experiencing a history of critical surface water drainage, critical surface water drainage. If it does, then regardless of the size of the site, you will need a flood risk assessment in any event. Um, I'll come back to a flood risk assessment in a moment, but if, for instance, you're looking at a site just for change of use, office to residential, and you are in a flood zone 2 or 3, don't completely discount it. In fact, it's very, much, it's very well worth looking at properties which are particularly in those zones. Because a lot of developers don't understand how to deal with it, and therefore they're ah. missing opportunities. You know, wherever the air is more rarefied, there is an ov- there is obvious opportunity there to steal a march on your competitors and pick up a site for pretty good value and do, be able to do something with it. Mm. Uh, and um, in fact, I I worked. Last year on a flood zone 2 stroke 3 site with Mark Stokes and Equi Group, uh, and we got uh, prior approval through for um, a site in Godalming um, for I think it was about 20 units we got in the end uh, and it was flood zone 2 and 3. Um, a, a lot of these sites, a lot of these buildings already have a degree of mitigation built in. They've got quite high internal floor to ceiling heights. The internal floor level is sometimes built up raised above the finished external ground level and there might be also trenches or landscaping or bunding outside as well which helps to mitigate the prospect of flooding. But if you're doing this, just doing a change of use it's not that you're putting a new building or a new structure in the middle of a flood zone and therefore it's going to displace flood waters to other outlying areas. That's the main concern it's displacement of water from new buildings. That's That's what the Um, what they're trying to avoid so um, changes of use is a lot more straightforward but still if you're flood zone two or three or in an area of critical surface water drainage you need to get a flood risk assessment done and before you go in with your application you need to have canvassed you need to have um, inquired formally with the environment agency first if you do not do so if you rush a flood risk assessment and put it in uh, and try and deal with this within a week or so, the council will refuse your prior approval application. Mm -hmm. Even though they consult with the Environment Agency themselves, they will still refuse it because you haven't shown you've done that within your report first, and you need to do that. And the problem with that is the Environment Agency almost always take about six weeks to come back on Mm -hmm. these inquiries. Mm -hmm. As soon as you know about a site, you need to also... Have a very good environment, uh, environmental consultant within your power team. Go to them. See if they've got good information on their mapping within their business as well. Have they dealt with similar sites in the area as well? Can they give you a steer on as to whether or not the environment agency will have an issue with it? Because usually you won't have six weeks to do your due diligence before you've got to confirm a bid.
0: Mm, right. Okay. Well, that's well worth knowing. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, when we talk about prior approval, it all sounds so easy that this is the kind of detail which people often skim over. Yes, absolutely. Interesting yeah. that the yeah. council obviously want to know you're taking it seriously. Yes, quite. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 quite. So prior approval, they say we can't go into every instance where prior approval actually applies. Yeah. But principally offices to resi, some retail to resi, we'll come back to that That's maybe. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, some light industrial to resi at the moment, I yes. understand. yes. But we don't have to do all of our conversions under prior approval. We could use planning, Yeah, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So
0: when when would we use planning,
1: David? Well, generally speaking, you need planning permission when you're erecting a new building or, new, or part of a new building or you're changing the use. Um, so whenever you fall into those two categories, you're going to need planning permission. Uh, however, there are exceptions. So... Um, There are an awful lot of permitted development rights for new buildings. So, for instance, if you buy a house, you want to convert it to an HMO, you want to convert it to flats, but you're thinking of extending the size of the house first. Mm. So what you then have to do is you need to check um, whether or not... Obviously, if you're going to put a conservatory on the back, you're going to extend it at first floor into the roof level. That's new building works that would normally require planning permission, but some of those works will fall into what's called permitted development. So you normally require planning permission, but in this st- instance you don't need to apply for formal planning permission because the works are generally seen as so minor. The government want- doesn't want to clog up the planning system with these relatively minor works. So there's a there's a different way of going through it. You don't need a formal planning permission. You'll need something called a certificate for lawfulness to prove that it's all okay, um, but it's... Um, it's not a formal process for planning permission. So that kind of lets you off the hook a little bit with with building works and with changes of use. You've got, um, you can change from one form of residential to another form of residential, go from one house to another house. Obviously it's the same, what we call use class in terms of planning. Um, But obviously if you're gonna go from uh, residential to offices or normally vice versa, that requires a change of use. But as we've just talked about, offices to residential also have a form of permitted development or prior approval attached to them so that sometimes you don't need full, full, full formal planning permission for those things either um, a lot so, of you so, li-
0: sorry just to jump in could be yeah. absolutely clear can you mix and match on this so can you have prior approval for say change of use for offices to residential and under permitted development to extend the size
1: uh, you cannot extend the size uh, under permitted development. You can extend it un- under permitted development as offices. So you might want to do that first. There are specific limits. I think it's up to 500 square meters uh, for, I'd have to check that, but I mean, there's an awful lot of thresholds mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. within the law um, for offices. Um, but um, in terms of um, changes to offices, you can do them under permitted development, but then you'll have to carry them out under permitted development as well. And then after that, you have to apply for, um, uh, for the change of use to residential. There is a difficulty here is that we're trying to invent new ways of, trying, of doing things. So Obviously, if you've got building A, you've got a particular building, and say it's, say, it's 10,000 square foot, you could take that 10,000 square foot, you apply for prior approval to go to residential, then that's not necessarily a problem. You take that 10,000 square foot and then you try to extend it under permitted development and try and get clever to extend the office um, footprint and the office floor space before then converting it to residential. Then there is... is it, is it is. The council might say, well, we're not quite sure whether or not this is allowable because it's not the same building as the one that you've got the permitted development rights for in the first place. That building was there since 2013 or even before. And therefore, whenever you try and do something which is a little bit off the wall, a little bit different, then the council, sometimes they're not sure whether or not it's allowable. Uh, and quite frankly, sometimes there's no case law on these sorts of things either. Uh, So developers and local authorities are trying to invent new ways of... It's a bit of cat and mouse, really, in the system. Developers are trying to find new ways to get clever with the system and improve the value on a site, Uh, and councils are trying to find ways in which to draw the line and say, no, you can't do it that way. You've got to do it another way instead. Uh, And quite often what it means is it kind of comes back to me to give a view, um, and I don't have any case law on these things because they're so specific. They're so narrow, these things. Or you have to go uh, to a barrister and seek expert opinion on them as well. So best to keep it simple. Keep Just it simple. use what's there. Don't get clever. Yeah. Don't get clever. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you want to extend, it's better to get the prior approval and then apply for the extensions afterwards afterwards. Uh, on the basis that it, it's under an application for full planning permission. Yeah. yeah. Um, just p- finishing the point about yeah. changes of use and residential, uh, obviously if you are going from a house to subdivide it to flats, uh, each of those flats is in, the same cha- is in the same use class as a house. So they're both C3, but you are intensifying the number of units on the same site. And that intensification qualifies in law as a material change in the character of the use. So for that reason, even though you're going from C3 to C3, C3 use being a, a residential dwelling, uh, because you're intensifying the number of C3 dwellings on site, that counts as material change of use and therefore needs planning permission. Mm. Okay. okay? So that's, you know, those, those are sort of the, the general rules. <clears throat> so let's say, for instance, you have you look at uh, a site, you look at a house, and you're thinking to yourself, I'd quite like to extend this house. I might want to convert it afterwards into an HMO, water flats, and so on and so forth. So I'm looking at extending the property uh, at the back in the conservatory, first floor, side extension, and do a porch extension. I'm going to do a basement as well. I'm going to really max out what I can do under PD, going to the roof, et cetera. Um, then you might be able to do that under permitted development. But in some cases, the council will have introduced what's called an Article 4 direction to withdraw the permitted development rights. Now, it can do this with building works such as extensions. It can do that with changes of use, such as office to residential. It needs a good planning reason to do it. It can't bring an Article 4 direction across its whole borough unless the government says it can. There are a few exceptions to this like City of London or Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, with regards to offices to residential, for instance. Uh, But uh, otherwise, they need a good reason. They need to go through a process, and then they uh, issue a piece of paper called an Article 4 direction. It takes its name from the particular legal provision, Article 4 of the General Permitted Development Order, which gives the council the power to withdraw permitted development rights. Now, these directions will usually be on the council's website. If you're not sure, go to the planning pages. Uh, These things always sometimes get hidden under different pages depending upon which council you're on. So go to the search bar and then put in Article 4 directions and see what comes up. If in any doubt whatsoever, you should uh, contact the council, speak to a policy officer, Um, Make sure you get their name, get their email address and so on and so forth and let them know the address of the site because you want to check the policy and see if it has an Article 4 direction and get that confirmation in writing from them as well. I've had so many situations where people have said uh, they've gone ahead and done the works, but they were told by the council it will be okay, and the council said, we didn't give the advice or we were mistaken in giving the advice. And was there a piece of paper to say that the council um, advised otherwise? Usually there wasn't. It's, it's verbal advice. And as, as we all know, verbal advice is not worth the paper it's written on. Now, I know
0: because I've listened to so many people talk about Article 4 in the context of HMOs yeah. that quite often we assume that if there's Article 4, it's a prohibition. But it's not really that, is it? It's the council keeping control. Absolutely. And the fact that there's Article 4 doesn't mean that you wouldn't necessarily get planning consent.
1: Yeah, yeah. They're just trying to control the effects of these so that there's not um, a proliferation of, um, for instance, in HMOs, HMOs in a particular area, there may have been a lot of complaints from local residents who've got their own houses living next to noisy or untidy HMOs and therefore uh, the council... uh, want to bring a bit of control back in house and therefore they'll bring in an article four. But as you rightly say, yep, there's no prohibition. You can apply for planning permission and you might still get it under planning permission. It's just that you've got to obviously tick a, a lot more boxes and jump through a few more hoops and it might take a bit longer. Yeah. So that's article four. Uh, just a quick word on planning conditions. When you are, for instance, looking at prior approval, very popular play. Um, you may come across a property um, which is, let's say it's, it's an office, always check or ask your um, architect or your planning consultant to check the planning history to make sure that there are no conditions on the original planning permission for those offices, if you can find that on the line, online, no conditions um, restricting its use to offices. Okay, because if there are conditions on the original planning permission, it trumps the prior approval freedoms. Ah, okay. Uh, And so you can apply for prior approval. You can tick all the boxes, but the council will say we cannot issue a prior approval because there's a planning condition on the original consent. Um, Similarly, if there's a Section 106 planning obligation to to a similar effect on a previous consent, which affects the same site as well. But with it's particularly more common with planning conditions so uh, if that's the case it's not dead and buried and actually a bit like flood risk it might scare a lot of people off and um, you might be able to put in a bid and still a a lower bid as well what you have to do is you have to apply for planning permission to remove that condition first which the council may or may not agree to but once that's removed then you've got a free run at the prior approval okay
0: okay I mean, that's an interesting situation to find yourself in, to actually have to get planning permission to get the planning permission taken off, in
1: effect. Um, It is. It is possible. I mean, I've had mixed experience of it, depending upon the council's importance that they attach to that planning condition. Um, We were very close to doing a deal last year on something um, in uh, Buckinghamshire. Uh, which was a very good site. actually had prior approval turned down for 90 units. It was about 35,000 square foot of different offices, all divided up into... They actually look like little um, mini-detached and semi-detached houses, actually, so it would have been a great conversion. Um, And prior approval was turned down, but actually they'd gone through prior approval before the, the owners, and they'd managed to almost get it through. All the boxes were ticked, but the only reason the council turned it down was because of this planning condition and we got in touch with the officers on an informal basis actually got an email out of the team leader saying if you came in to us to discharge this planning condition and to remove it uh, then we would probably grant your application and he also confirmed to me that he would probably be the one who makes that decision in any event it wouldn't go to committee or anything like that so that was really really good information for our funders Mm. Uh, and uh, they were very keen to go ahead. So we put in an offer. Um, it was, again, it's quite a, a meaty one, this one. It was about 7.5 million purchase price, but when we first looked at it, it was roughly about 7, 7.5 million profit as well. Uh, Brexit ate away at that a little bit, quite a bit, actually. Um, but, um, the, you know, we're talking about big numbers here, but the principle's the same, Peter. You know, if you can find an opportunity like this, no one else is sniffing it around. They're put off by the planning condition. They don't know what they can do with it. And then they'll run away. They'll go and look at other sites. You might, it might be worth making inquiries with the council and see if you can remove that condition. And therefore, then it's a great opportunity. Great. Yep. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, in terms of um, planning conditions uh, as well, the last point to make there is in terms of, trying to save a current permission. So what I just uh, want to say is that when you are, so for instance, some a lot of developers and investors, they're looking at sites which already have a planning permission. It's not implemented. The first thing you need to do is you need to look at whether or not um, any of those uh, conditions are what's called pre-commencement conditions. So if they say on them before the development commences, or before any development commences, before demolition and development commences. That's pre-commencement. So you'll usually have three years from the date on which the planning permission was granted in order to implement the permission. That can be any demolition of any structure or part of the structure on site. It can be digging a trench. It can be laying out a road, that sort of stuff. Anything relatively minor than that, but it's that can qualify as saving the permission. And in most cases, you'll want to save the permission rather than have to go through the whole renewal process with a a new application for planning permission. So what you have to do first is check the decision letter, see if there are any pre-commencement conditions, and then you have to apply to discharge them. Now, you have to allow about eight weeks to discharge a planning condition once the application goes in, uh, and together with the time for the team to put together The application and the supporting documents, you could be looking about 10 weeks. If you don't have that time, if you are that close to the expiry of the three years, then you're going to be taking a risk. Now, some councils will accept you making a start on site whilst the application has gone in, as long as the application to discharge the condition went in before the expiry of the three years. But you are at risk. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily count on the officers saying that we would um, we would still allow you to go ahead. We would count the application as implemented, or the permission as implemented, if you at least do it this way. And at least as long as we get the, con- the application in before the three years expires. They might do, but you've got no control over that answer when you ask that question. And it's completely at their discretion. So... That's something you need to look out for. If you're looking at acquiring the site, you're making your bid on the basis of the value in the scheme with the benefit of a planning permission that's already sitting there. You need to be thinking to yourself, how long have I got in order to save this permission if I haven't started it or lawfully started it already? So you need to be looking at those conditions. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's it in terms of, you know, when do you need planning permission, really? Right. Well, that um, was incredibly useful, David,
0: incredibly useful. And it strikes me, you haven't actually been doing this that long yourself, but you've got a wealth of experience, and obviously your background very much helps with that. Yeah. But as somebody who's relatively new to actually doing the practical side of it, I'd love to pick your brains as to maybe some of the problems that somebody who's starting out might encounter. The problems,
1: yeah, the problems are not actually, they don't really change actually all that much. They just become (laughs) the same problems, but to a different degree, you know, as you go further and further into your property journey. Uh, So, for instance, the three main problems, I think, for anybody, but especially for novices and those people starting out, um, one is experience and overreaching themselves. Two is the time available to them uh, and the time to do uh, the necessary things you have to do in terms of getting to grips with the property development or investment opportunity, uh, and also money and cash flow, those sorts of things as well. So taking each of those in turn, I'd say, you know quite a common problem is overreaching yourself Uh, if you don't have the experience with a particular strategy uh, and actually there are quite a lot of experienced relatively experienced developers out there who are used to um, smaller commercial developments like HMOs like uh, flat conversions and that sort of thing and they go for these massive commercial conversions like 150 200 units Um, and whenever you make a mistake the bigger the development, the bigger the mistake. Um, and obviously, a lot of people say, Yeah, but if I get it right, then obviously the more money involved as well. This is a very, very risky time. You have to be very careful because the market is changing. Um, a lot of investors are hedging against that as well. By, you know, when you go and see an investor, you might be able to say, Well, we think the units will sell for this because this is what we got this is the comparables we got from the agent knows the deals out there but most investors particularly on larger deals they will realize that the market's very uncertain it could go either way Um, it's very unsteady at the moment and I'll usually take about 10% off those sale prices before they accept your own valuation as well and that's if your own investors are doing it never mind you know, perhaps the bank's value and so on and so forth. So, um, going into things where there are complex strategies, uh, you need a big power team. You're very heavily exposed, particularly if you don't do the due diligence and due diligence costs time. It costs money as well. There's a certain amount of risk money involved as well, but that's what they pay the big bucks for. If you want the bigger profits, you know, you've got to mm. put that money in as well. Um, and going for commercial conversions as well, um, so often, you know, start with something that you're comfortable with, but if you want to then reach up to the next level, usually look to do it with somebody who can guide you, either as a mentor or if you're on an educational program. So look to do if you're looking to do commercial conversions and bigger projects, you're looking to do planning permission play schemes, then you know, you're you're going to need to get some training, get some education learn what the risks are and that will also then feed your imagination as to, well, I was on this networking event with such and such and I know that they're doing these schemes and there's maybe something that I can lend to that relationship there. And then you're getting into the realm of doing perhaps joint venture uh, or you're doing partnerships, you're, you're marrying up your relative strengths so that what somebody else is perhaps weaker on, you're strong on so yeah for instance you may be good at finding the sites you've got the energy to get out there you may even have the time to get out there but other people have the experience they may have the money so you know you perhaps you earn a bit as you learn from them on the scheme as well uh, and be prepared quite early on to sometimes have to take less than the 50-50 split on the profits if there are any hopefully in in the project later on because the value of what you get back in the early days on a new strategy for you as you're learning and helping to control and minimize your risk and everybody else's risk in the project because it's not overreaching it's not overexposed it's worth its weight in gold more than pays back and you won't be at that level for long because after one or two projects at that level you'll be experienced yourself and there may be people then want to partner with you as well so it's a it's a very virtuous circle, you know, really virtuous spiral and it really does help. So that's, mm. that's the overreaching part.
0: Yeah, yeah totally agree. Totally agree. Yeah.
1: So in terms of the next part, in terms of time, trying to do too much, chase too many shiny pennies, we often look to dry, try and pursue too many strategies all at the same time. Choose one thing. Get good at it. Try and systemize it. Control your time on it. And then once you've done that and you're comfortable with it, then move on to the next thing. Mm. Again, it's like a it's a, it's a bit of an extension of overreaching yourself. But mm. time is precious. You never can get that back as well. And if you split yourself in too many directions, you're likely to miss things. Mm. And missing things can cost money. Totally. I
0: mean, that's why we talk about the 70-20-10 here. Yeah. And, the, and the 10 is probably just investigating the next thing, not actually doing it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <clears throat> so the last one is very much connected to these as well. In terms of money and cash flow, you hear a lot of people um, wanting to get out of their their JOB and you know get into property full time. and that's great. Um, but don't necessarily rush to do it if you don't think you're ready for it. It's best to, better to have a cash flowing property strategy that you've got first and systemize that. but if it, that's not there yet and you're not ready for that yet, then my personal advice, my personal opinion is and depends everyone's different depends upon their circumstances but stick you may have to stick with your job for a little bit longer but it's much better than running out of money and then panicking and then giving up property completely which is what a lot of people do Mm. you know you've got to ease your way into it and it's got to be sustainable over time it's not going to be happening in big flashes and bangs and fireworks and within about you know 30 days or 60 days um Slowly, gently, but you have to learn as well and you have to learn the risks as you go along. You can do an awful lot in that time. In 30 or 60 days, you can do any number of deals and rent to rent and service accommodation and that sort of stuff. Perhaps the bigger strategies, the commercial conversions, they require a lot more work. They take longer to get over the line. You probably can't turn over quite so many of those as you can of the of the smaller properties. But I always feel a little bit... A bit wary and mixed feelings when I see people posting online. Hey, I've just I've just sacked the boss. I've just mm. um, left the job and gone into property full time. And I'm very very happy. Don't get me wrong. I'm very very happy for them. But what are they going into? Mm. You know, what have they got in order to replace the income that they've left behind? Maybe I'm too, being too practical here, and I'm not being romantic enough about the whole thing about leaving your J-O-B behind and going into property. But I've just seen it too many times from people who just think, oh, bugger, I probably shouldn't have left Yeah, quite that quickly. Yeah, well, it, it's that's the reality, isn't it? Yeah. I, mean, I
0: always say, you know, don't sack your boss tomorrow.
1: Yes. Get, get,
0: get your property up and running first. Yeah. yeah. So that you Absolutely. know you in transition. Yes,
1: yes. Patience, persistence and perspiration, I think that's the... Mm. The three main hallmarks of yes. a long career, please God and property.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: brilliant. Well, David, we've pretty
0: much got to the end of our time now. I'm sure that everybody listening to this will be absolutely fascinated, and you've obviously got a wealth of knowledge and information and experience in this subject. How can we learn more from you? How can anybody get in touch with you, and what what can you do for them?
1: Well, uh, I, I can be contacted through my email address, which is david at drkplanning.co.uk that's david at drkplanning.co.uk uh, i'm also on facebook either find me at david kemp or through D R K Planning limited which is fb uh, for facebook.me stroke planning permission also on linkedin um, and uh, also you'll find me on instagram as well but uh, i can be contacted through any of those uh, happy to uh, book a time in order to discuss a particular planning Uh, development opportunity that you may be seriously looking at Um, but even if you're not um, what we're doing is um, we realize that there are an awful lot of developers and investors out there who are looking to uh, learn about how planning permission how they can learn about the planning system and how that can work for them in order to make bigger profits open up more opportunities which fewer people are seeing as well as p- also perhaps to bolt onto to existing strategies that they've got, particularly in commercial conversion, uh, residential conversions, um, and it makes them more credible and it makes them more experienced and then opens up things like funding and us- other stuff to them because they've got that experience and they've got that background to them. So we're going to be running an eight-week webinar-based course on planning strategies and tactics Um, particularly for developers and investors. It's going to be packed with information. Um, I'm going to strip out all the boring bits if I possibly can and make it as geared as I possibly can to giving you hands-on strategies about how to make the best of the opportunities out there, some insights as to what's coming forward in terms of policy and law, the opportunities out there. Also, some of the biggest risks and pitfalls that you need to be aware of, um, particularly when you're looking at schemes very, very early sometimes even before your power team is in play as well. Uh, and we'll be starting to run that course from around March time. So I'm starting to gear up the promotion for it now, and there'll be more of it, um, more details on how to join in um, with the masterclass that leads into that. There'll be, we'll be doing a 90 minute masterclass to describe our, our three step strategy in terms of planning. Uh, so, uh, that will be coming, but please get in contact with me in any of those ways. Um, make sure you're on the circulation list. And uh, I very much hope for hopefully look forward to seeing you on the course. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And if you're listening to this past March, because we could be listening to this in a few years' time, yes, give David a shout. Absolutely. You'll still be here, hopefully, and still able to help and looking to help.
1: Very much my hope as well and my intention. Yeah. Thank mm, you, Peter. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. Well, David, it has been great having you on today. Thank you so much for coming in. And I've been Peter. And if you want to know more about me, you can come to my website, which is thepropertyteacher.co.uk or check me out on YouTube. I've got a YouTube channel. Go onto YouTube and search on The Property Teacher and you'll find loads of my videos. But until next week, until the next progressive property podcast, here's to successful property investing.